Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my trusty friend and producer, Max Kerman. Max, what's going on? Uh, you know, I just popped over from the studio where the Arkells are recording right now. We're going to get to that okay. in a second, yeah. Max, because we're also here with uh, Shane Cunningham. We're we increasingly doing more three-man pods. It feels good. Hello. All right, guys. This is a really exciting episode today because our feature interview is Joshua Jackson. Uh, this, yeah. The star of the affair, obviously, Dawson's Creek back in the day. This guy's very big. Canadian. He's, Canadian, too. Yeah. We will get to Joshua Jackson uh, closer to the interview. Before then, Max, you just came from the studio. Yeah, we're recording right now. It's, it's really fun. We're uh, working away on our record. The producer uh, for these batch of songs is this guy, Joe Ciccarelli. He's, mm. uh, he's sort of a famous producer. And we knew his work. Uh, he had done a Strokes record. He did a My Morning Jacket record. Uh, he did the Young the Giant record. Like a bunch of bands. You said he worked with Elton John? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Then I, we started doing the deep dive into his uh, sort of discography, and he did an Elton John record. He mixed some U2 stuff. And so basically, I've sort of hijacked the whole recording session just asking him stories. So I'm like, tell me about Beck. Tell me about Jack White. <laughs> tell me about Elton John. And he just has a story for every single guy. So he told a great story about Elton John. He, Elton John's been recording with the same band since the 70s, and they told him that every single Elton John song, including all the hits, took under 45 minutes to write in the studio. So Elton John shows up in the studio in the morning at around 10 a.m. Bernie Taupin, who writes the lyrics, shows up to hands him a big binder, which is basically just like a menu of lyrics. Elton John sitting at the piano, leafing through like each basically poem, I guess, at this point, finds something. Okay, cool. Knocks out a song in 40 minutes. That's the way every single Elton John song since the 70s has been written. And they have the the guitar player has like sort of a, a longstanding joke with Elton that they're working on uh, Yellow Brick Road, that record. Yeah. And uh, Elton John's showing him a song that turns out to be Daniel, or like one of the hits. I, I might begin the name wrong. And, and he says, oh, boss, that's a great song. Oh, good good work. Do you want to get some lunch? And Elton says, no, I think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm feeling creative. I'll, uh, you go you get some food. So he goes to the kitchen, the guitar player, makes himself a ham sandwich, comes back. Elton goes, oh, check this out. And it's boom, boom, boom. It's Benny and the Jets. Yeah. So the whole the joke in Elton John band is like, is the song as good as a ham sandwich? Which is a pretty cool like. Anyway, it's it's basically just being around like a VH1 behind the music session. Hey man, it's the wow, circle of life. Awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. It's an Elton John song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was what was the song called? Circle, circle of Life from Lion King. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a good joke. <laughs> no, it, it is if you get it. Yeah. I just don't know a lot about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good joke. Um. Yeah, so that's exciting. You've been recording. And actually, for any sports fans listening, didn't you say the Leafs assistant GM came by your session today? Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So this sort of has to do with Shane. So uh, Shannon Dubas is the wife of Kyle Dubas, who's the assistant GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And Kyle's a year older than me. He's only, he's like 30 years old. And Shannon got in touch with the band asking if we could play his birthday party like last week. We couldn't do it because we were on a bachelor trip in Montreal. (laughs) That's why we couldn't do it. Uh, But uh, we invited them to come by the studio. So it was really fun. Uh, They were couldn't be nicer and i felt like we had a lot in common with them like and shannon knows you shane from your childhood so you guys are basically cousins or something we went to florida together i i don't know it's like my stepmom's best friend's yeah daughter okay that's the connection but you kind of like just say your cousins at that point i actually cast her in a short film <laughs> really yeah she uh she's deathly afraid of snakes i didn't know that because in the short film she has to wear a snake around her <laughs> neck <laughs> So this is kind of like she did that favor for me, uh-huh. and then ten years later she asked 
for the favor to be returned uh, for uh, to help her husband out on his 30th. Yeah. And, and we kind of came through. And then she said, if I did that, I'd be able to like get like uh, tickets to a game maybe or something. Well, this, so I, I was really rooting for this to happen. Well, this is the thing. I think we so, we're still good with the tickets as they were leaving. Like, if you need any tickets for any Leafs yeah, games. Yeah, you are. No, I'll, I, you know, she, she uh, speaks fondly of you, Shane. I think it'll be fine. What'd she say about me? Uh, she said, your dad's crazy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she said, oh, Shane's All right, dad's a- I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> she said, oh, Shane's dad's a wild man. And my stuff. dad actually yeah. set them up. <laughs> That's the reason they're together. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. There you go. Through a newspaper clipping. What? He was, uh, he got promoted to this, uh, the, a big, a big hockey job. Not, he, not the Leafs. No, he, yeah, before. he was working with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds yeah. and he's so, the GM. He was like 22 or something. Yeah. So he kind of made headlines. So my dad anonymously cut this out kind of like a serial killer. <laughs> he is actually a crazy dad. More I think, but, <laughs> <laughs> and he mailed it to them. But without <laughs> just the just the clipping, just the clipping, and because they both went to Brock, the University of Brock. Well, they dated years ago, oh. but they had since they'd been broken up for a few years. So my dad found a clipping, remembering Shannon's old ex boyfriend, and is like, hey, "I'm just going to send him the newspaper clipping and see <laughs> see what happens." Turns out she ends up contacting him through the clipping, like rekindle some sort of meeting, and now they're and now they're married. They're married. Crazy. Oh, are, are we going to acknowledge, like, all this love stuff's good, but Scott Whalen died. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's what I thought. That's why I thought I was called in. We, no, we just like you. No, we oh, just okay. want to know. Yeah. No, but, I mean, you, you, that, that's a huge story. And, and uh, obviously, he was a guest on this podcast. Um, Shane and I sat in a room with him, what, two months ago? It's, it's insane that that happened. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty shocking. It, it, it is and it isn't. Because right. he seemed very unwell. While we were interviewing him on the podcast, because he looked much older than his years, I thought, and he was—he looked like a very cool, maybe like fifty-eight-year-old, right? And he was only forty-eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess you sort of nailed it. It's shocking in the sense that it's like anybody you were just talking to a couple months ago is, dies mm-hmm. in their sleep. That's shocking. But I mean, I guess the kind of like overall feeling. Um, or the way that sort of people have talked about this, the tones they're using, sort of the the way they're speaking about it, seems that nobody is shocked. Do you think that's just like a, a rock star thing, or do you think it's a him thing specifically? I think it's a him thing. I think I think people, because I know some friends of friends that are sort of know people in LA and in that camp and in that that world, and I think there's probably a lot of people from his generation, like '90s rock, that mm-hmm. you know partied really hard and did drugs, but. If you're still doing that into your 40s, you know, there, you know, to that degree, there's a good chance, you know, you're not going to live very long. And they, they actually found cocaine in his uh, bunk in his bus, the room he was staying in. Hmm. Yeah. So he wasn't being truthful when he said he was off Oh, of drugs. course not. Right. He didn't sound like he was being very truthful. But what do we know? Yeah, it was actually the only one, because it, it did affect me, that I put on my Facebook to promote. Because I try to keep, like... The things I say on the pod, like I don't want my family checking it out. Uh-huh. But then my mom and sister actually ended up getting curious and checking it out, and it caused a bit of a like ripple effect. <laughs> oh, no. so for so, context, uh, <laughs> so that we do this Scott uh, Wylan episode a couple months ago, and Shane comes on at the end and does his pop culture aficionado thing. He reviews the movie The Visit by M. Night Shyamalan, uh, but in describing the movie, it basically just becomes a big story about going to the film with his mom and his sister, and it was like a comedy of errors. And I didn't know that one was attached to that episode. Right. 
So I was just like, what are the odds? You know, it'll be about my, so I'm like, I took the risk and I put it on my Facebook page, uh-huh. but my sister was quite upset with me. <laughs> what did you say that was so bad? I, thought I didn't it was think charming. so. She said, oh, I wish, you know, she's like, I seem like a weirdo and I wish you cast me in a more endearing light. So I just want to say, I think Tiff's very cool. My sister, <laughs> Tiffany, and she is endearing and she's very fun to be around. And uh, to my mom about the one-ply toilet paper. I just, that was, that was <laughs> you did say your mom buys one-ply. I think my mom is very cute and funny and fun because I noticed when I went there, she had two-ply. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. She had changed all the toilet paper. And I don't want to, like, send her to the poorhouse because of this podcast. You know, it is 18 cents more. So... <laughs> And so, no, and I think the other yeah. thing is that everybody has quirks in their family. Mm-hmm. That's what makes the that's it. That's what good. makes our families interesting. Yeah. But apparently, I heard that she actually just when guests are coming over now, she switches it to two ply and then switches it back to one ply <laughs> when the guest leaves. That's what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> My mom still turns off the heat at night in the middle of the winter. Really? Yeah, because she's like, well, you're under a blanket. Why do you? Why does the heat need to be on? <laughs> you realize your mom's going to listen to this podcast now and yeah. be very upset. That I know. See, Mom awesome. Max's mom's crazy, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, guys, this is an exciting episode because we talked to Joshua Jackson, Canadian icon. I'm going to mm-hmm. just, I'm saying it. Oh, yeah. Chris Hadfield's probably my favorite interview yeah. so far. Yeah. But this is right there, man. You know what? I feel like oh, I wish we had an hour and a half with Joshua Jackson. Big time. He could have talked forever about so many different things. Actually, it was, I was actually kind of nervous uh, preparing for this because I was there for this one. Max you and there. I were sitting in this boardroom at 299 Queen Street. I will say this just before you get into that. When we didn't know whether or not you were going to be there or not, I feel like my brother Greg and Shane were about to get into a uh, a big fight about who got to come with me for this I one. I know. I know. And then I just put my foot down and I said, I'm in. Yeah, it was like because Greg all of a sudden wanted to go, and I'm like, I'm the backup guy. Yeah, <laughs> like if I'm sick, you're like you're you're next in line, but I'm feeling fine right now. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and then I got at the like uh, the 13th hour or whatever, yeah. like midnight. You texted me. Or yeah. That's when I got the text at least. It's like, yo, dude, I feel like it's been too long since I've sat in. I got this one. I got this interview. Yeah, and actually, to be honest though, I think Greg just didn't want you to have the satisfaction because Greg said to me, he who said. I think you should be there. Why are you letting Shane do the interview? Fucking <laughs> Greg. <laughs> he was like, you're the producer. Shane's not the producer. You should do the interview. You're going to cause a major rift between Greg and yeah. Shane right now, man. My friends are trying to tear me apart. Um, I don't like that. <laughs> so uh, we were... So anyway, we're saying this... this board you're, you're, you were saying you're nervous. Say I was nervous because he was supposed to be there, I don't know, 10.30, and it was like 10.37. So like... There was tension building, and I felt in the room. I was trying to play it really cool. And then publicist who was there waiting for Joshua Jackson with us goes, oh, he's here. When we talked about this podcast, you know, when we conceived of it, the whole thing was we want to have conversations like literally you're sitting at a pub and talking to somebody and saying like, how do you do what you do? Yeah, where were you at when this was happening to you? What were you thinking? Where was your head at? Those kind of conversations, um, you can't always have them. It always depends on the mood of the room, how much time someone's going to give you. But I felt like Josh Jackson, like you said, he's somebody that you wish you had an hour to talk to. You kind of like he was on Howard Stern. Jake Gyllenhaal was talking about how he almost got the role for uh, Mighty Ducks. I like that you addressed that. Yes. It was a very good answer about Jake Gyllenhaal. That is the tease. You have to listen to an interview, which is going to happen right now. I'm Max. Yeah, Josh. Josh. Mike. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Pleasure. Nice to meet Thanks you. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah. How's, it, how's it going? So far, so good. Yeah? Yeah. When did you get into town? <laughs> Just last night. It's quick. It's oh, yeah. a quick trip. Yeah. Where are, you, where are you coming from? LA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. 
LA, then down to New York, or down to actually Miami this weekend, of all things. My, uh, is there a press junket there? No, my better half is used to be a model way back when, and one of the girls that she lived with in, in one of those model apartments is married to Jeff Gordon. Do you know the oh, race right, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's his final race, so he invited us to go down, so we're going to go see the oh, race. Crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Wow, and that's a big deal for Americans. It's Jeff what, Gordon's like Yeah, I mean, NASCAR Gordon. is like not my thing right. really, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it's a very big deal. And I, when I was living in the Carolinas when I was younger, he like NASCAR's a big, big deal. Yeah. yeah, and this is and not only is it his last race, but he's actually in contention to to win the whole championship this year. So that's crazy. Um, yeah, we're gonna start with the affair. Fire away. I've uh, I've seen every episode. Uh, okay, good. Yes, <laughs> fantastic in it by the way. Thank you. Your character is far more prominent this season than it was in season one. It's true in every single way, but in the first season, just by design. The two characters outside of our main characters couldn't be that prominent because we only existed in their memories. So, by virtue of giving him his own piece of the narrative, you bring the the character to the forefront. But you also do something which is, you know, for me a lot. There's more interesting stuff to be played in the second season because you give the characters an interior life when you give them a, their own perspective. And so this guy who was for Noah very a very sort of simple brutish character. And for Allison, a more complex but still sort of simply drawn character suddenly gets a, an, an entire world of possibilities when you go inside of his skin and you see how he's interpreting what's going on. Far more three-dimensional. It's exactly. like he's a real person. He's a real person, yeah. And as an actor, is that something that you were like, sweet, this is great? Well, yeah, it certainly provides... I mean, the, the quality of the writing in the first season is very good, so you know, I was already pretty happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... For Cole in particular, the guy that we've seen all through season one, and then when we meet him in his own perspective in the second episode of season two, feels like a very different man, right? The yeah. place that we find him at the beginning of this year, after the affair has come out, after he's lost the ranch, after the, his family has dissolved, is not the sort of the confident, strong man that we met in season one. Even though he did some crazy things, he was always presented as this, you know, as the reason why he was on a horse when we first met him. Right? Alpha male, yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And so we meet him, and he's just emptied out. And I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition. And that, you know, and, he, and he's a mess. He's a slave. He's got a beer belly. And the beard's right. everywhere, and the hair is all great. Oh no, it's a podcast. I can actually talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Swear away. Yeah. And so he, you know, you, you get a chance to see the, that point counterpoint, and I think it really broadens the possibilities for who the character can be. And it also shines a light on what the, 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 whole, the central theme of the show, which is that each one of these people are telling their truth. There isn't an objective truth to be found in it. You just have to choose where you want to, what you want to believe most. You mentioned, um, you know, the writing obviously is very good. The show's been recognized uh, with awards. On this podcast, we're always really kind of interested in the minutia of how like creative people do their work. Like, how do you get a role like this? How do you find out about it? Is it something where you get a script? Do they approach you? It came, I mean, yeah, they, it, it comes, in this instance, it comes via script. So I had finished, I was like six or seven months off of Fringe and and was honestly pretty burnt out at the end of that because it was, it was a pretty long run. Lo yeah, we did five, five and a half years, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that last season got a little crazy, I gotta say. The, the last season got a little crazy, <laughs> and just 22 episode seasons are hard, right? Mm. They're just really difficult. So, so I was a little burnt out and had skipped, had intended to skip an entire year before even thinking about going back and working in TV. So 
that was the thought. And then there were two scripts that, that got sent to me, even though I asked for them not to be, over the course of that summer, that were the type of good that you can't say no to, right? So one of them was Fargo, oh. show, which was excellent, and the other one was this. And got into the conversation with Sarah, and, and you know, because there's not very much of the cool character in that, in that pilot episode. And got into the conversation, like, what is this, you know, what is this character? Because when you're, when you're doing a television series, it's not a film, right? You, so there's a whole other world of possibilities, and you need to know what you're getting into going forward. And then also, what is this show? Like, what, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. And she had, she's a, like a very deeply intelligent and thoughtful woman. And the story that she spun out and what she desired, like what she wanted to be saying with the show, I found so interesting that it, it became one of those, even though, you know, in theory, I wasn't looking to go back to work right away, it became one of those obvious, obvious choices. I mean, when you're supposed to be on a break, do you, was there a party that's like, don't read it? Oh, sure, yeah. So what made you read it? Uh, I think a little bit of boredom, frankly. <laughs> the, I, you know, I, I had, it was in middle of July, probably, and they'd sent me the script and I had not read it, and then they, I found out that Dom and Ruth were in, and then I found out that Mora was in, and it's, it's, so suddenly it starts, yeah, right. and then, yeah, exactly, and like, oh, yeah. okay, so this looks pretty good, and... And then, and then I read it, and it was one of those, you know, and I had that moment of like, damn it, why did I do that? <laughs> um, and even still was like, okay, but it's, you know, there's an interesting character, but it, there's, not, there's not a ton there, and that would be interesting, but I'm not sure that, this, or that I want to do this over the course of potentially years of my of life. And then I had that conversation with Sarah, and, and I was, that was it. I was like, well, yeah. Um, I mean, going back, you started acting at a very young age. Um, were you always drawn to film and television? I mean, is this something that... Well, I think the cart was sort of before the horse for me. I started so young that I'm not sure that I would give myself the credit to say that I was drawn to it. Like, had developed tastes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, because it was before you, before I was at the age where you would make a conscious choice like that. Obviously, I would say now, looking back over the course of my life, it is self-evident that this is what I was drawn to, because I've stuck with it for so so long now. Um, but I think as a kid, it was just a it was just a, a, a avenue for expression, right? It just was fun, something fun to do. Yeah. Was your mother a casting director? Yeah. Is that the deal? Okay, cool. Th which is how I started like doing the the even the not fun portions of it were fun for me, which is why she allowed me to keep on doing it. Like in the beginning, it was in the beginning it was like having a paper route, right? <laughs> Single mother, two kids, so. You know, being an extra or a stand-in on the weekend was it like a safe environment to have your kid in, bizarrely, <laughs> where you could, you know, you could know where I was going to be, and and I could make myself a little bit of pocket money, yeah. and and it just, and that's literally how my career started, and I enjoyed it. It was fun to be on a set with adults and to like feel like you were part of something and get access to a world that, as a kid, you're just not allowed to play with the adults. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And and then it became about performance, and then. And then 30 years passed. So, yeah, I guess for like a lot, I mean, I talk to actors and I'll be like, you know, was there a moment when you got the call for that big movie? So obviously like Mighty Ducks is this massive sort of Disney film. And for some people, they'll get that call and it's like, you know, you got the lead. Right. It's like, you know, hurrah. For you, was it sort of just the development where it's like that felt like a natural progression because you've been around sets? No, no, that was a big, that was a really big deal. Like that was a... I mean, I, w I had just started my first year of high school, so I was 
a couple months in maybe like to Atlanta? eighth grade. No, I went to Ideal Mini School first. Okay. And then I actually got thrown out for doing those movies. It was a, it was a, it was a school like it was a public school, but you had to apply to it. Right? Okay. We have these. In I don't Vancouver. know if you do them in Vancouver. Yeah. I don't know if you do them here, but. They're like these little satellite schools, mm -hmm. and, and that was the arts satellite school. Got you. So I had applied to this thing, gotten in, and then then left for for half of my first year, and then went and did another movie for the first portion of my second year, and well, which I thought was what you were supposed to be doing at the art school, but they were like, nope, you got to go. <laughs> yeah, you're actually doing the arts. Yeah. 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 Um, so when you got it, like, I mean, do you remember the feeling like, did it feel like things were going to change? I, I think this might, I, I might have polished this story over, the, over time, the memory <laughs> is, is faulty, but I, I think I remember sitting, you, we had to do, you had to do a charity drive for the school to raise money for it, and I believe I was sitting on a chair, like, cold calling local businesses in Vancouver <laughs> to give 50 bucks to the, like, the Christmas pageant for Ideal Mini School when my mom called me in, and, uh, and was like, are you sitting down? Because I've got great news. You just, you're going to be in a movie. <laughs> okay. wow. And then that's that. Well, and that, I mean, no, then lots of things happen after that. But I, you know, I think I may have actually even fallen out of the chair. I think I understood at that point that something big had just changed in my life, right? Mm -hmm. And it was something that I was, you know, working at hard enough that that did feel like an accomplishment. And yet I would say at that age, I was still so far like years and years before anything that that started to approach performance right it was a, just a completely natural thing i was just a kid and and then we got down there and actually part of probably one of the the best things that could have happened to me in my career was that emilio Estevez was in those movies because he is a a very decent human being and he has been doing it for a very very long time and so took on for anybody who wanted to listen took on that mentorship place so wow. because we were just all of us kids. There was a couple of professional actor kids in there, but most of us were just kids. You don't even know what you don't know. Complete. I mean, I remember doing a scene in the first Mighty Ducks movie where, and I think I was just probably bored, we were doing this long scene around a table, and I, because we did so many takes, I ended up learning all of the dialogue, so I would just, <laughs> I would just start talking every single line. I would do the whole thing around the table, like, li literally speaking out loud as other people would speak like, and finally Emilio had to be like, um, you can't do that yeah. because they got to record us. I'm like, oh, like I knew nothing, you know, I, I was as green as you could possibly be. I actually heard on Stern, I don't know if you heard this, Jake Gyllenhaal mentioned that he'd, he'd turned down the Mighty Ducks role. I don't even know if that would have been yeah, a role, but... told me that. I think he's full of shit, but, <laughs> but, but okay. I, I guess the question would be, I mean... Well, because he would have been nine. Right. And how old are you? I think he's great nine. I think I'm old... Well, how old is Jake Gyllenhaal now? I think he's in his... Yeah, he's a little... Maybe a little younger, younger than me. Yeah. yeah. So... Maybe he's a liar. I'm going to call bullshit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I guess with that, I mean, being an actor is such a sort of... It's an unknowable sort of thing, I think, from year to year, from week to week even. Um, how much of a role do you think circumstance and luck plays in, like, overall success for anyone in, in your line of work? Um, a huge, huge amount. Like, is it more than people would maybe would like to sort of acknowledge? Because that's, that's, that's scary, right? It's something out yeah, of your control. Well, yeah. I mean, so much of it... I, I mean, look, I, let's use Gyllenhaal as actually a really good example. So, the, so <laughs> wherever his career actually did start, whether it was with turning down Mighty Ducks or not. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the first couple steps that he had to take are all circumstance, right? I mean, he and I are of the same age cohort, so we've been auditioning against each other for years and years and years. And I guess I'm right in between him and Leonardo DiCaprio, so there's another guy, like... 
at the beginning, I'm sitting there at those tables too, right? And it just takes that one thing, but then it takes, and Gyllenhaal has done an amazing job of this, then it takes being a really conscientious, sort of like long-thinking actor to get yourself in front of the right material, to work with the right people, to get yourself, you know, to, to, to have enough, to be precious enough about your own abilities to hold out for working with the right directors and things like that. And I think he's done an amazing job of that over the course because he could have just been any number of the other guys who have come and gone over the course of the last 15, 20 years, but instead he continually pushes into, you know, you know, interesting character work with interesting directors on, on often very difficult things. Not that every single one of them works, but that's that's the way to maintain over time and to take a little bit of control back. When you're taking a look at the landscape around you, do, do you ever see like another actor who goes, oh, that guy should have done that and that and that? Is, is that sure. Well, I look back in my own life. I mean, I certainly, there are, there are you know, they, the I don't have to point any fingers to look at a couple of the films that I've done. I'm like, mm, yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's a fascinating thought. I mean, at what point did you become conscientious of that? I mean, in the beginning, were you kind of like, oh, I'll take this, I'll take sure. that? Sure, the beginning... I want to work. Yeah, at the beginning, it was total, like, you want me to do what? Yeah, of course <laughs> I'm going to do that. Absolutely. I mean, I get paid? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, well, and yeah, I mean, you know, that was no small part of it. Like, I was a, the eldest son of a single-parent family, so mm-hmm. making money was... That, yeah. that, wasn't a, that wasn't a side pursuit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was important. Yeah. And, and it's a large portion of... of what was so radical for me in my life and in my family's life about Dawson's Creek was suddenly to go from, you know, the when people conceive of what that, like when you say, oh, that show must have changed your life, it did, but not in the way that most people think. Like not in the suddenly you're famous or suddenly you have more options. Suddenly I was making more in a week than most of my friends' parents would make in a year. And my family's financial situation changes from, you know, like, working single mother and we were taken care of I don't want to like paint some miserable yeah. picture right like you know our life sure was okay. but you still worry about bills sure but yeah my, my mom is you know a single mom raising two kids You're, yep. you are certainly worried about bills and, and everything else and then you know from that my sister's able to go to private school and then have a you know get a good education in the states and so it just like that was a radical shift in all of our lives and so the money making portion was was always present for me like it wasn't it wasn't purely an artistic endeavor and I will admit to the fact that there are films certainly that I have taken over the course of my life that were simply because bills had to be paid like that's no, just you're not like yeah. a rich Hollywood kid or something yeah like there wasn't it wasn't a safety net for me to fall back into uh-huh. so so and it does you know that that has impact and I will say and this is one of the places that I have like respect for a Jake Gyllenhaal is that he he had a sense of his own value from a very early age and made those, I'm sure, because I'm sure the whole world opened up, up to him at a certain point. I'm sure he turned down some things that, that probably kept him up at night, but has had an interesting career where he has gone from, you know, interesting project and, and occasionally fantastic work to fantastic work by being more precious. Like you mentioned with, I mean, something as big as Dawson's Creek I mean coming off the docks and Dawson's Creek those are these are like these massive successes yeah was there a stretch in your career where you know after all those movies and everything where you're like shit like what is next I don't know what's next was there ever oh, like man the 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 transition out of high school sucked really yeah before so I'd never really auditioned for television before 
before Dawson's, honestly, because I was never in LA, right? I lived in Vancouver, so you have to be there for, back in the day, you had to be there for pilot season, and that just wasn't part of, you know, I was in school. So the reason I was there for that pilot season was for a movie that actually got delayed by a year. This movie called App Pupil. Oh, yeah. And the, you know, it got, I was a pain in the ass teenager, so I got kicked out of my house. I was living on my own. I, the, you know, the Mighty Ducks movies were behind me, and I went through the first, like, long stretch of no work. Right. So was, you know, not cute broke, like, broke broke. Legitimately. <laughs> like, legitimately tits up broke. <laughs> and, uh, and... Then, you know, and that pupil got pushed, like this was the thing that I was really counting on to carry me through the summer. And and got in the in a time of dire need, a producer that I had worked for several years before, he used to make these you kinda of call them like after school specials, not high quality work, but he, he you know he he made a bunch of them actually for Showtime, I think they aired on Showtime, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. That's random. <laughs> um, and in a like a time of real dire need went to him and was like I, I need a job like I, I, I but I need a job like right now I, I just was in that desperate place yeah. where I was like you know I'm I'm a I'm a high school drop I can't even get a job at Rogers video one of the most depressing moments of my entire life was trying to get it like and they were like sorry you don't have a high school diploma this you can't is, work is here. yeah <laughs> yeah wow yeah this is so, after Mighty Ducks yeah wow. yeah because I got kicked out of high school and then I got kicked out of my school and and uh, I kicked out of my house so you know I was I was Putting the putting the nails in the coffin for for my youth, and then and I also and then from a, as an actor's time, you know, like I went from being a cute little kid to being a totally gangly, you know, young dude. But I, you know, my voice had yeah, like that, that weird yeah. phase that we all go through. So yeah, there was absolutely a couple of moments in my career. I had the financial wherewithal after Dawson's to actually take stock with the next time I had that transition. But that transition between like seventeen and nineteen was pretty tough. Well, I guess, lastly, since we got to wrap this thing up, do you see yourself acting into old age? Is there other things you'd like to do? Well, the answer is yes to both, because you, because you can do both, mm-hmm. right? That there are plenty of other things that interest me and plenty of other things even inside this industry that I, that I would like to do. And there have what been... What are those things? They, well, I, at a certain point, if I, if I found a piece of material, I would love to direct something. Right? I'd, like, I'd like to put all of the things that I've learned over the course of these 25 years and see if I have anything interesting to say as a director. Right? I also enjoy the process of producing, so yeah. I'd like to produce a couple more things. That being said, there's also things outside of, you know, outside of this industry that I find quite interesting. So, unlike most careers where you have to do all of everything or all of something else, this career actually affords you the opportunity, encourages you to go in and have as many diverse interests as possible because it actually makes the central pursuit, which is acting, stronger the more things that you go out and branch into. That was Josh Jackson. Thoughts? Man, charming mofo. He's, in my opinion, the biggest guest you've had on for me and what I consider famous. Yeah, he was great. But this is the Shane segment. Pop culture aficionado comes on the dessert. That's what Maxie calls it. I love it. The people I'm love it. Give um, me some sugar. <laughs> All right. Uh, Shane, comes. what have you been doing? What have you been watching? What have you been listening to? Okay, so uh, we were supposed to have a rap battle. That's not, basically anything we say we're going to do uh, the previous week. We never do. That's yeah. our new theme, I realized. But yeah. we're consistent at that. Yeah. Then we said we were going to see the night before. As a group. As a group. Oh, yeah. So uh, got all our friends together. 
to, uh, you know, drink and see the night before. <laughs> we didn't see the night before, so I was kind of at a loss of what to talk about. Uh-huh. But then I actually watched something, actually did something kind of pop, pop culture related once. I watched... Um, the SNL with Ryan Gosling. Oh, very. I watched this as well. I PVR'd and I watched it yesterday. It was a very, I found it. Uh, did you watch it? I Matt? missed it. Oh, I will watch it. Because, yeah, Gosling, um, I thought it was overall a good episode. I find if you have one or two good sketches in the whole hour that get me laughing, I, I consider it a pretty good one. Yeah. But when he came out, he was so nervous. Yeah. It really kind of like put me in his position. So I kind of liked it. I was like, for the monologue. For the monologue. He was the most nervous I'd ever seen a host. Really? They brought out Mike Myers basically do the heavy lifting. So Mike Myers comes out in a Leafs jersey, and it's the, the whole monologue is about Canada. He's oh, shaking. Wow. He f***s up uh, saying Saturday Night Live. He calls it Fatterday Night. <laughs> he goes, I can't even say Saturday Night. And he was. And it wasn't a bit? No, it threw him off right away. It was just him being himself. He, I thought he was fine in the sketches. Shane made the observation. Like when he was kind of playing a character, which is probably what he feels more comfortable doing. Yeah. But when he came out just in the, the, during the monologue and they had to sing a song and he was, yeah. Weird. Yeah, and he, uh, he's bad at singing in unison because you could tell. It felt like kind of a practice, was, which I found fascinating. I almost like seeing a, a f*** up better. And, and, and that I find endearing. Uh-huh. When someone's kind of screwing up, it humanizes them a bit. It's not like they're as professional as you might think. And people think Gosling's so cool and hunky. It was kind of cool to see him knock down a notch in front of uh, my girlfriend who was watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, he's not that cool, is he? Yeah, and, but his vulnerability probably only makes him more attractive. Yeah, yeah, sure. he did seem cuter at that moment. And, <laughs> but then one of the best skits I've seen in a good while was they had this, like, three people were abducted by aliens, and the two of them kind of have these magical experiences like uh, Ryan Gosling and Cecily Strong they have these like crazy like oh yeah I went to a higher place man and talking like that and then Kate McKinnon just talks about how the aliens kind of just knocked her boobs around (laughs) 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 and uh, they kind of like went off protocol like alien protocol and basically sexually harassed her (laughs) and including with like an alien lookout to make sure the boss wasn't coming well well they fondled her tits it was I think it was an instant classic and it made Gosling comfortable, I think. Yeah. Because it got him to uh, stop thinking so inwardly. And he was just like, uh, it, I thought it loosened him up because it was right after his monologue. So it was good timing. But yeah, so I thought if, we, if we're going to review uh, pop culture, yeah. I say that was a solid, fascinating SNL episode to watch. Most people PVR it these days. And I suggest you get on that. But yeah, Max is leaving right now. So it's very distracting mid-story, Max. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, lean in, Max. Where are you going right now? Uh, back to the studio. This is this is how we're wrapping up the pod. You actually got to go to the studio. This yeah. is yeah, real I'm life, not telling guys. a story without you here. You're my laugh guy. <laughs> well, it was great, and I got to go. Don't patronize me, Max. Just leave. Thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe. Uh, you can follow us at Mike on Much on Twitter and Instagram. All of the artwork for the Mike Much podcast is done by Jenna Gregory at jennasdoodles.com. I am your host, Mike Veerman. I'm still sitting here with Shane. I'm like... Producer Max. Yeah, I'm about to leave you now. Oh, what? You're leaving me as well? Put my coat on. Okay. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.